Hi there. So this time let's go through major depressive disorder or MDD. I want to spend a specific episode dedicated just to major depressive disorder just because there's quite a bit to it. And then I have quite a few medications I'd like to go over that are very related to MDD. So starting off, what is causing MDD? It is an alteration in neurotransmitters, and this can be including serotonin, epinephrine, norepinephrine, dopamine, acetylcholine, and histamine. So those are the neurotransmitters that we're talking about. And then neuroendocrine dysregulation can also be a cause of MDD. So this could be like adrenal, thyroid, or growth hormone dysregulation. I think it's important to keep that additional cause of MDD in mind because it's not necessarily just an alteration in neurotransmitters. We'd be able to look at other potential causes besides just saying, okay, it's some issue with serotonin and we need to prescribe an SSRI. I think we need to keep those other things in mind and some kind of neuroendocrine dysregulation can be the cause of it. Going into clinical manifestations and diagnosis of MDD, the initial screening tool that will be used is PHQ-2. If that is positive, then it will be a PHQ-9. So looking a little bit deeper into the PHQ-9, the first two questions are the PHQ-2. Those questions are little interest or pleasure in doing things, and then feeling down, depressed, or hopeless. Those questions are answered as either not at all, which will be zero, several days, which is one, more than half the days, which is two, or nearly every day, which is three. So all of these nine questions are answered with either a zero, one, two, or three, depending on their response. And then it is scaled on either having none or minimal depression, mild depression severity, moderate severity, moderately severe, or severe. So again, the first two questions are little interest or pleasure in doing things. Number two is feeling down, depressed, or hopeless. And then the last seven, so completing the PHQ-9, is trouble falling asleep, staying asleep or sleeping too much, feeling tired or having little energy, poor appetite or overeating, feeling bad about yourself or that you're a failure or that you have let yourself or your family down, trouble concentrating on things, moving or speaking so slowly that other people have noticed, or the opposite, being so fidgety or restless that you've been moving around a lot more than usual. And then the last one is thoughts that you would be better off dead or hurting yourself in some way. So I think the main things to commit to memory are the first two questions. Number one, little interest or pleasure in doing things. And number two, feeling down, depressed, or hopeless. If they are positive at all, then you're going to go on to the PHQ-9. So that's the initial screening that's done in order to figure out if someone potentially has MDD. And then the diagnostic criteria of MDD is going to be at least five associated symptoms, one of which must be a depressed mood or anhedonia almost every day for most of the days for at least two weeks. So the five associated symptoms, right, one of which has to be depressed mood or anhedonia, the other ones could include loss of interest or pleasure in activities, a feeling of worthlessness or inappropriate guilt, poor concentration, decreased or increased appetite, psychomotor changes, and then suicidal ideation. And then there's a good mnemonic I've heard before, SIG-E caps. If that sticks, that's great. So S is for sleep changes, hypersomnia, insomnia. I is for interest. So this could be the loss of interest or pleasure in activities, which is the anhedonia. Also, you can think of that as for depression. The G is guilt, a feeling of worthlessness or inappropriate guilt. E is for energy, low energy. C, concentration, poor concentration. A is for appetite, decreased or increased appetite. P is psychomotor changes. And then S is suicidal ideation. So the same symptoms that I had listed before, but put in that mnemonic of SIG-E caps. So if you can think those through, there needs to be at least five associated symptoms occurring for almost every day, most of the days for at least two weeks. Additionally, the symptoms must cause significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. It must not be attributable to physiologic effects of a substance, bereavement, or other medical condition. 
The occurrence of the major depressive episode is not better explained by another psychological disorder, and there has never been a manic or hypomanic episode. And then you can think that when we're making sure there's not a manic or hypomanic episode, we're trying to rule out bipolar 1 and bipolar 2. Looking into the treatment that might be used for MDD, therapy-wise, it could be CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, interpersonal therapy, or supportive therapy. And then looking at first-line pharmacologic treatment, that would be an SSRI. If there's no effect after four weeks or potentially four to six weeks of an SSRI, you could try switching to another. If that's still not working, the second-line pharmacologic treatment would be an SNRI or bupropion, which is Wolbutrin. If SSRIs, SNRIs, and bupropion or Wolbutrin are not working, the next options would be TCAs, tetracyclics, or NAOIs. So TCAs, which are tricyclic antidepressants, that could be something like imipramine or clomipramine, tetracyclics, which could be mirtazapine or remeron, and then MAOIs, which could be phenylzine or selegiline. And then one other treatment option that people don't often consider, because it, it might be viewed as something that's not used anymore, but electroconvulsive therapy. So this is used in patients who are unresponsive to medical therapy, unable to tolerate pharmacotherapy, or need for rapid reduction in symptoms. So that might be a question that comes up on some kind of exams, but the most efficacious treatment for severe major depression is actually going to be electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT. It is the last line. You want to be trying all those other potential options first but it would be beneficial. And then one other contraindication for ECT that had come up a few times for myself that I thought was maybe important to mention in this is that a brain tumor with elevated intracranial pressure, that would be an absolute contraindication to ECT. So now that we've gone through major depressive disorder, I think it would be beneficial to go through the medication management of major depressive disorder and the various medications that will be used while trying to treat patients who are suffering from this. So first off, going into SSRIs. So these are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So their mechanism of action is they increase central nervous system serotonin activity by inhibiting serotonin reuptake. I think it's important to note that there is little or no effect on dopamine. So when we're talking SSRIs, we really are just talking about serotonin. They do take about four to six weeks for maximum efficacy. So when patients come in just after a short period of time saying this isn't working, really we need to be giving it at least a month before we can tell if it's efficacious for the patient. SSRIs are considered the first-line medical therapy for depression, PTSD, PMDD, which is premenstrual dysphoric disorder, panic disorder, and anxiety disorder. There is only one SSRI that is actually approved for the treatment of bulimia nervosa, and that is fluoxetine, also known as Prozac. I think that's important because that will come up sometimes in examination questions. A patient who has bulimia nervosa, and we need to know how to properly treat it, and it's going to give you a bunch of different SSRIs to choose from, fluoxetine, Prozac is going to be the best choice. An important tip that comes up again quite a bit is that bupropion, Welbutrin, is very contraindicated in any kind of eating disorder as it increases the risk for seizures. And then we'll go over that medication more specifically in just a bit. Fluoxetine or Prozac is also the SSRI with the longest half-life. And then there are only two SSRIs that are approved in the pediatric population. And again, that's fluoxetine, Prozac, and escitalopram or Lexapro. And you'll also find that escitalopram or Lexapro is really commonly used because it is known as just one of the best well-tolerated SSRIs out there. The most common adverse effects of SSRIs are going to be GI distress, including diarrhea, headache, insomnia, anxiety. Those are the main ones. You'll also come across sexual dysfunction, weight changes, sedation. In the future, we'll also go over serotonin syndrome. 
And the most common SSRI to cause this is going to be paroxetine, which is also known as Paxil. And then you'll find that paroxetine has a very short half-life. In just a bit, we'll also go over SNRIs. The SNRI that has the shortest half-life has the highest risk of serotonin syndrome. So that short half-life plays a role in the increased risk of causing serotonin syndrome. But for SSRIs, that is paroxetine or Paxil. The most concerning cardiovascular adverse effect is QT prolongation, especially with citalopram, which is Celexa. And just to distinguish between the two, citalopram, Celexa, and escitalopram, Lexapro, what they really did was they just tweaked citalopram a little bit more to come up with escitalopram, which is Lexapro. But citalopram is going to have the highest risk of QT prolongation of the SSRIs. Paroxetine or Paxil is associated with most weight gain. I've heard the saying before, pack on the weight with Paxil. Again, Paxil is paroxetine, so that could help you remember that. And then the last couple I have here is diarrhea is most commonly associated with sertraline, also known as Zoloft. And then fluoxetine, once again, is most associated with increased activation. So just a recap of SSRIs really quick before we go into SNRIs. They increase CNS serotonin activity by inhibiting serotonin uptake. There's little or no effect on dopamine. They are first-line medical therapy for depression, PTSD, PMDD, panic disorder, and anxiety disorder. The only SSRI approved for the treatment of bulimia nervosa is fluoxetine. Fluoxetine also has the longest half-life, is most commonly associated with increased activation, and is one of the two SSRIs approved in the pediatric population, the other being citalopram. Escitalopram, the one I talked about being kind of the, the tweaked, updated version of citalopram, is also the best tolerated. Paroxetine causes the most weight gain. Pack it on with Paxil, because paroxetine is Paxil. Paroxetine is also most likely to cause serotonin syndrome, as it has the shortest half-life. And then the last thing I would try to remember is that citalopram, or Celexa, has the highest risk of causing QT prolongation. Moving on to SNRIs, these are serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. They block the reuptake of both norepinephrine and serotonin, enhancing the actions of both of those neurotransmitters. And then they also are associated with increased dopamine levels, unlike SSRIs. I found that one of the main things to take away from SNRIs is that duloxetine, Cymbalta, is particularly useful in patients with significant fatigue or neuropathy pain syndromes in association with depression. So you're most likely going to get some kind of an exam question talking about a patient who's dealing with depression, but they're also having some kind of neuropathy pain. Duloxetine, Cymbalta, that's going to be the first choice. There is also a U.S. black box warning associated with duloxetine, and that is an increased risk of suicidal thoughts and behavior in pediatric and young adult patients. Duloxetine or Cymbalta is also particularly known for causing diaphoresis or sweating. And then moving on to venlafaxine, which is a Fexor. This SSRI is known for causing zingers to be felt in the head. I've heard patients talk about this before where they just feel what they would describe as a, a zinger. It's something that kind of needs to be felt to understand, but that's the best way that they've been able to describe it, kind of like an electrical shock-like sensation. But those symptoms are going to be specifically associated with venlafaxine, which is a Fexor. Venlafaxine should also be avoided in patients with uncontrollable or labile hypertension because it does cause dose-related hypertension. And then venlafaxine is also most associated with serotonin syndrome. So like I said before with SSRIs, that short half-life does play a role, and this SNRI venlafaxine has a very short half-life. And then really one last thing I would just make sure to know with SNRIs is that they should not be used with MAOIs, also known as monoamine oxidase inhibitors. And then we'll go over those in just a bit. Next, we can go into bupropion, which is Wellbutrin. So I talked about this one before. It is an NDRI, which is norepinephrine and dopamine reuptake inhibitor. It has minimal serotonin effects, so minimal nausea, somnolence, and weight gain, and no activity at histamine receptors, so there's no sedation with this one. 
I think it's also important to note that it's a nicotine antagonist, making it useful in the management of nicotine dependence. So Chantix is one medication that's used for smoking cessation. If that can't be used, bupropion, Wellbutrin can also be used instead. It is known for having a very short half-life, requiring very frequent dosing, but it is also associated with less GI symptoms, weight gain, and sexual adverse effects compared to SSRIs and SNRIs. It's indicated in major depressive disorders and seasonal affective disorder, as well as smoking cessation, like I mentioned before. And then it is also one of the medications that patients will often use if they're having sexual adverse effects with one of the other antidepressants, such as SSRIs or SNRIs. Another thing I've noticed is that bupropion can also be used off-label in ADHD. During my psychiatry rotation, I did notice it being used in that way. The most serious adverse effects of bupropion are going to be a lowered seizure threshold, as well as potential worsening of suicidal ideation. So something you really need to keep in mind, depending on the patient. And then the main contraindications for bupropion are going to be epilepsy, patients who have taken MAOIs within the last two weeks, and then conditions with increased seizure risk. So that's going to be really any eating disorder. So I mentioned that before with bulimia nervosa. So fluoxetine, like I said, is going to be the SSRI that can be used in bulimia nervosa. But you need to keep in mind that bupropion is a contraindication for any eating disorder, as it will cause an increased risk for seizures. Next, we can go into tricyclic antidepressants, or TCAs. So the mechanism of action of TCAs is that they inhibit the reuptake of both serotonin and norepinephrine. There are tertiary amines and secondary amines. The secondary amines are going to be the least anticholinergic, antiadrenergic, and antihistaminic, and that's going to be dizipramine and nortriptyline. And then the tertiary amines are associated with higher toxicity with overdose, and that's going to be amitriptyline, clomipramine, imipramine, doxepin, and amoxepin. Of those tertiary amines, doxepin has the most antihistaminic side effects, and amitriptyline and doxepin have the most anticholinergic side effects. So doxepin is associated with antihistaminic side effects and anticholinergic. Amitriptyline is associated with the most anticholinergic side effects as well with doxepin. TCAs are indicated for depression, neuropathies, pain disorders, insomnia and anxiety, migraine prophylaxis, and then nocturnal enuresis after the failure of desmopressin. So if desmopressin is used and it's not being beneficial, then imipramine can be tried. TCAs are generally used less often than other types of antidepressants because they tend to have more serious adverse effect profiles and then they have severe toxicity related with overdose. Getting into a little bit of specifics, clomipramine is the only TCA FDA approved for the treatment of OCD, and then doxepin can be used for sleep maintenance in insomnia. Some common side effects of TCAs include things like anticholinergic effects, which would be dry mouth, constipation, or tachycardia and orthostatic hypotension. When I think anticholinergic, uh, I've learned before anti-slud. So cholinergic would be slud, so salivation, lacrimation, urination, and defecation. So when I think about anticholinergics, then we're looking at anti-slud, so dry mouth, constipation, tachycardia. So it's kind of the, the opposite of the cholinergics. They also have the antihistamine effects. So that would be sedation and drowsiness, increased appetite and weight gain, confusion. And then they also have some serotonergic effects, which might cause sexual dysfunction. The most concerning cardiovascular adverse effect of TCAs is QT prolongation. You might find that that's a little bit of a theme in some of these antidepressants because you can remember with SSRIs, citalopram was the most likely to cause QT prolongation. When looking at TCA overdose, you want to think of the three C's. So that would be cardiotoxicity, convulsions, and coma. So the cardiotoxicity is looking at sinus or wide complex tachycardia. Convulsions are relating to the seizures, and then coma can be just being in a comatose state. The initial management and treatment of TCA overdose is going to be sodium bicarbonate, and that's used for the cardiotoxicity in an attempt to help improve cardiac conduction.
contraindications and cautions. So with TCAs, you don't really want to be using them at all around MAOIs, which we'll go over soon. Uh, anytime there's a recent MI, because of the cardiotoxicity, that is one of the three Cs. You don't want to be using that with a recent MI. And then seizure history. Again, convulsions is one of the three Cs, so you want to be careful. Now, pretty quickly, we can go over mirtazapine. So this is an atypical antidepressant, also known as a tetracyclic, also known as an alpha-2 adrenergic receptor antagonist. So when I think about these medications, really the, the main one I'm thinking about is mirtazapine, which is Remeron. So it is an alpha-2 adrenergic receptor antagonist, like I said before. These medications increase the release of serotonin and norepinephrine from the nerve endings. They have a high affinity for histamine receptors, leading to their sedative and calming effects. These medications are indicated in depression and anxiety disorders. In terms of adverse effects, we're mostly looking at antihistaminic effects, and that's going to be drowsiness, sedation, which is most common, and then weight gain. So you can look at those as adverse effects, but also potentially beneficial for a patient who isn't sleeping well. In terms of contraindications, these alpha-2 adrenergic receptor antagonists should not be used with MAOIs. We're going to go into MAOIs next. I just think to talk about it right now with these alpha-2 adrenergic receptor antagonists, they are increasing the release of serotonin and norepinephrine. The mechanism of action, though, of MAOIs is that they block the breakdown of different neurotransmitters like norepinephrine, serotonin, dopamine, epinephrine, and tyramine. And with that blocking of the breakdown of serotonin by the MAOIs and the increase of the release of serotonin with a medication like mirtazapine, there's a high risk for potentially causing serotonin syndrome. So then going specifically into MAOIs, as I mentioned before, they are monoamine oxidase inhibitors. The three common MAOIs are phenylzine, tranylcypramine, and selegiline. Like I said, the mechanism of action is that they block the breakdown of neurotransmitters by inhibiting monoamine oxidase. They are indicated for atypical depression or refractory depression, as well as refractory anxiety disorders. So when I think about that and when I see that, I'm thinking we're trying a lot of different medications first. But if someone just has refractory depression or anxiety and all these other medications just aren't working well for them, you might end up coming to say, we need to try an MAOI. In terms of adverse effects, orthostatic hypotension is most common. And then hypertensive crisis is uh, something that can be seen after ingestion of foods high in tyramine. So the last class of medications I want to go over is serotonin receptor antagonists and agonists. So this will include medications like trazodone, nifazidone, and vilazidone. Primarily, these medications are used in insomnia. And then when I'm thinking about a medication like trazodone, it's often used at both initiating and maintaining sleep. So when a patient is just having trouble maintaining sleep, you might actually be able to use a, a TCA like doxepin. So I've seen doxepin used particularly just as sleep maintenance, whereas trazodone is when patients have difficulty both getting to sleep and staying asleep. So I would say the, the most important thing that I noticed to keep in mind with this was trazodone useful for initiating sleep and maintaining sleep. And this is a serotonin modulator. And then doxepin, which is a TCA, is useful in sleep maintenance insomnia. And then in terms of adverse effects, the most common adverse effect is sedation. But when it's being used for insomnia, these kind of medications make sense to, of course, have that sedation. And then a rare adverse effect, but is also very classic to this class of medications, is going to be priapism. And that will cover major depressive disorder and then the pharmacology of major depressive disorder. Hopefully this helps. I kind of just wanted to make sure these medications went in with major depressive disorder because this is where a lot of it comes into play. You will see these medications being used in many different disorders, but I thought introducing them now might be a good idea considering they'll be used in the future. And if I can get them in now, then hopefully they'll make a little bit more sense when we come across them down the line. So hopefully that helps. 